0: Hi, I'm Norm Hill.
1: And I'm Stephanie Hill.
0: And we're going to talk today about Doctrine and Covenants, section 30 through 36. These are great sections. They have a wide variety of topics, but there's three really dominant themes. One is the mission to the Lamanites Oliver Cowdery, Parley P. Pratt, Peter Whitmer, and Ziba, Ziba Peterson all went to a mission to the Lamanites. We're going to talk a little bit about that. Secondly, we're going to talk about family relations and dealing patiently with sometimes reluctant or difficult family members. Thomas B. Marsh is highlighted. We all know the story of Thomas B. Marsh and Sister Marsh and skimming cream from a shared cow that she had with uh, Lucinda Harris but as Paul Harvey used to say, today you're going to hear the rest of the story. The third theme in these sections of the Doctrine and Covenants is about developing faith, really the core of our beliefs, and how a more complete understanding of the parable of the wise and foolish vir- virgins, virgins help us understand faith. Now, sharing the gospel is As I mentioned, an important theme that begins these sections in the Doctrine and Covenants. As background, the church is pretty small during this period of time. We're still in the 1830-1831 time frame when the fledgling church needed new members. And so Oliver Cowdery goes on a mission with others. Um, There's something really unique that happens in our personal lives, and with our own faith when we try to explain the gospel to others. Section 30 and section 32, we read about Oliver Cowdery, Peter Whitmer, Ziba Peterson, and their call, along with Parley Prepratt, to go preach the gospel in the wilderness to the Lamanites. And you say, well, the wilderness? What do you mean the wilderness? Well, the Indian Territory was the other side of the Missouri River, Kansas, as we know it in the United States today, didn't exist back then. It was, if you will, the wilderness, Indian Territory, as it was defined by the United States at that period of time. These four set out on a mission that turned into three months just to get from upstate New York to um, Indian Territory to what eventually was the frontier in Independence, Missouri. Sometimes we don't realize they had to travel 1,500 miles. They were walking nearly all of the way, and it was difficult and strenuous. At one period of time, Parley P. Pratt says in his autobiography that they were in snow that was three feet deep. They had to travel essentially with very limited supplies over a difficult period. Uh, A difficult landscape. There there were times when there was no road. They were off-wheeling, if you will, uh, going off-roading on their own. A long journey with mostly just the clothes on their back.
1: Wow, 1,500 miles, that's quite a trip, but lots of steps on their Fitbit.
0: Yeah, you'd like it that way, (laughs) keeping track of all of those steps. Just to put the distance in perspective... Uh, It's only 1,100 miles from Nauvoo to the Great Salt Lake. So these four intrepid missionaries, who had themselves been members of the church only a few months, walked even further than the pioneers whose journey we celebrate in days of 47 parades and, and festivities. Back then, as I mentioned, Missouri was the edge of the United States. Across the Missouri River, in what today is Kansas, Was the Indian territory. But along the way, the missionaries didn't just travel, they also preached the gospel. Eventually, they baptized 127 people on their way to the Indian territory, on their way to preach the gospel to the Lamanites in the wilderness, as this section of the Doctrine and Covenants invites them to do and clarifies. Some of the people they baptized became prominent in the early church. Sidney Rigdon, Edward Partridge, Frederick G. Williams, they're all part of the early foundation of the church. And sections 35 and 36, these sections in this discussion of the Doctrine and Covenants, are also revelations given to two of these early converts, Rigdon and Partridge, who went to New York after being baptized, to meet the prophet, while Frederick G. Williams continues as a missionary, in fact, with Oliver Cowdery and the others.
1: So so already their mission has been pretty successful.
0: It was. They, they baptized along the way, uh, members of the church who became very prominent. And when they arrived in Independence, Missouri, two of the missionaries took day jobs as tailors just to have enough money to support them the other three and all five of them together. They met with members of the Shawnee tribe as they crossed over the Missouri River and later with the Delaware Chief and Tribal Council. Both the Shawnee and the Delaware had been relocated from eastern lands under U.S. President Andrew Jackson's Indian Relocation
1: Act. So so why had they been relocated?
0: So now we're getting into a little of local politics of the time. And while I don't want to say much or get into a lot of detail about what happened from a political point of view, it is important to have a little background to understand what happened to the missionaries and better understand this section in the Doctrine and Covenants. So there were two prevailing political views in the national government in Washington, D.C. at the time regarding Native Americans. The predominant one was to keep them separate and relocate them as part of westward expansion of the U.S. So in this case, these tribes, the Shawnee and the Delaware, were relocated from eastern parts of the U.S. and would later be relocated again. The other view was to build schools and such and integrate Native Americans just like any other group that was coming from Europe or Asia or anywhere else.
1: So the melting pot.
0: Yeah, the melting pot. We all talk about that. Most ordinary Americans at the time, however, thought Americans from Europe thought that Native Americans were inferior, and the best thing to do was to keep them separate. Joseph Smith had the opposite view, however. His view was that Native Americans had a long and glorious history, was captured in the Book of Mormon, of course, and that even the Native American culture of today, of his period of time, there were a lot that could be learned from that group.
1: We're better together.
0: Yep, that's exactly right. And let me emphasize that to Joseph Smith, it wasn't just one way of assimilating Native Americans into the existing colonial culture. But he wanted to take the best of each and use the Book of Mormon as a basis of learning not only the spiritual legacy that the Lamanites had to share, but current Native Americans and what they had to offer to everybody else living in the eastern seaboard, uh, as well as what then was the west, Missouri.
1: So so Joseph believed in a unique version of the melting pot, but how... How did that go over when the missionaries arrived in the Indian Territory?
0: Yeah, it didn't go over very well with some of the local officials. Went over well with the tribes, especially the Delaware tribe. Oliver talked about building schools and living together, not just taking over. He said Joseph's view was that taking the best was the way for the country to be built, and that the Book of Mormon even prophesied of the Lamanites in latter days blooming like a rose. The tribal chief of the Delaware, his Americanized name was William Anderson, was very receptive and wanted to hear more from the missionaries, wanted all of the members of the Delaware tribe to have the missionaries speak to them. But the local Indian agent, a representative of the government, his name was Richard Cummins, for the area, didn't like these New Yorkers, outsiders meddling with the tribes, and and essentially wouldn't let them continue preaching. He He gave them an out, said if you could get permission in writing from the territorial agent in St. Louis, then that would be okay. Uh, that territorial agent is a historical figure that We sometimes know a little bit about uh, General William Clark.
1: Clark? Is that Clark of Lewis and Clark fame?
0: It's exactly the same one. So Oliver Cowdery wrote a letter to General Clark requesting permission for the missionaries to teach. That letter is in a museum in Kansas City, but so did Cummins. And while... Oliver Cowdery said his primary mission was to teach Christian values, establish a school, and learn from the Delaware tribe. Uh, Cummings said, hey, these these guys are meddlers, they're talking strange stuff, no doubt referring to the Book of Mormon, and discouraged Clark from giving them permission to speak to the Indians. Uh, Cummins' letter is also available as a matter of the historical record.
1: So what happened? Did the missionaries get permission or not?
0: No, they didn't. It was Clark uh, essentially did a pocket veto. He never replied, so the missionaries were not able to continue teaching or meeting with the Delaware or any other group of Native Americans in the Indian Territory at that period of time.
1: Wow, that, that's fascinating.
0: It, it is a fascinating story while they were successful and receptive in Ohio and some success in teaching Native Americans in the Indian Territory, their overall efforts were thwarted by officialdom, if you will, bureaucracy. And what Oliver Cowdery found is that uh, there were some local ministers who didn't like them in the area either. Harley P. Pratt recorded this in his autobiography and said it was the jealousy and envy of some of the local ministers that convinced the Indian agent that they ought to not give permission for Oliver and the others to teach the gospel to the, this group of Lamanites, this group of native Americans.
1: So what's the implications for us today and for missionaries?
0: I'm glad you asked about that. First, Um, Some years ago, President Dallin H. Oaks said that we need to establish a gospel culture and work towards that regardless of our individual background or cultural tendencies in general. Uh, President Oaks was saying the same thing as the Prophet Joseph Smith. Don't just assimilate together. Establish something new, something unique, something brand new that's based on the gospel. President Oaks was speaking when he talked about the gospel culture, specifically to members in Africa. His talk is recorded in the Ensign and reprinted in the Ensign in 2010. Let me quote from two parts of President Oaks' talk. First, talking to the Africans, here's what he said. Quote, the strong African family culture is superior superior to that of many Western countries where family values are disintegrating. We hope the examples of love and loyalty among members of African families will help us teach others these essential traditions in the gospel culture. Modesty is another African strength. We plead with youth elsewhere to be as modest as most of the young people we see in Africa. End quote. Again, you're hearing themes from the prophet Joseph Smith in President Oaks' talk. Let's build something new based on the gospel, based on the Book of Mormon. Take the best of each. But President Oaks uh, also said that there were some local traditions that were inconsistent with gospel values, and he cited male dominance in the home and the bride price. In this same regard: Elder Joseph Satati, a native-born African, a Kenyan, now serving in the Africa Central area presidency, often quoted in meetings the scripture from Second Corinthians. Second Corinthians 5:17 says this: "Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new." I knew Elder Satati when he served in the African uh, West Area Presidency. I was a counselor in the state presidency in Lagos, Nigeria, and he would often come and speak either to members or to missionaries when I was there. Later, I was called as the Ghana Accra West Mission President. And while serving as a mission president, we had missionaries from as many as 26 different countries. We'd often say it was almost like a little mini United Nations. And in that mission, with so many different cultures and backgrounds, we'd often remind ourselves that we all needed to become new creatures in Christ. We needed to develop a gospel culture independent of our nationalities, whether that was North American, European, whether that was Kenyan, Tongan. We had missionaries from the Polynesian Islands. Regardless of our cultural background, we needed to become one in Christ. And during that period, I came across a wonderful scripture from the book of Acts. Let me read a portion of it. Where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcision nor uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, bond nor free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on therefore as the elect of God beloved humbleness, meekness, long-suffering, forbearing one another, and above all these things put on charity, which is the bond of perfectness. These scriptures remind us as well that there's no heritage that is important as the gospel legacy. President Oaks then went on to talk in uh, his 2018 General Conference message of the importance of missionary work. And when he talked about missionary work, he said there were lots of local practices that would be efficient and would be very helpful. But he wanted to talk about some practices that were broad, that regardless of our background could be applicable. Let me quote from his 2018, sharing the restored gospel talk. Quote, I wish to speak of ideas that will work everywhere, from the newest units to the most established, from cultures now receptive to the gospel of Jesus Christ, to cultures and nations that are increasingly hostile to the religion. I want to speak of ideas that you can share with persons who are committed believers in Jesus Christ, as well as with persons who have never heard the name, with persons who are satisfied with their current lives, as well as with persons who are desperately seeking to improve themselves. So he's, end he's, quote, he's setting the stage with his remarks to tell us, he's going to talk about a few universal principles, a few things that we can apply regardless of where we might be living, regardless of where missionaries might be serving. Here's what he said, quote, We need to remember that people learn when they're ready to learn, not when we're ready to teach them. What we are interested in, like the important additional doctrinal teachings in the restored church, usually isn't what others are interested in. Others typically want the results of the doctrine, not the doctrine, unquote. I think this is a profound shift. President Oaks is saying whether it's everyday missionaries or full-time missionaries, find out what people are interested in, and then talk about the results of the gospel, not just doctrinal teachings. It's a bit of a sequence. So he's, he's saying, if you will, let's flip the narrative. Rather than talk doctrine first, let's let people ask about doctrine after we find about their interests and after we've shared the fruits of the gospel. So the sequence is one, determine others' interests, two, share the fruits of the gospel, three, allow others to ask doctrinal questions based on their interest. In my new book, What They Don't Teach You at the MTC, I apply this advice for President Oaks, and I give lots of examples of how to do it. This approach is gaining some traction throughout the church, but is sometimes overlooked in various places. Today, full-time and everyday missionaries are sharing the gospel virtually in unique ways that never have been available prior to the Internet. The Internet gives us an opportunity to share the gospel when we understand others' interests, even by joining interest groups, where there's already something of a bit of a common interest.
1: What they don't teach you at the NBC, that's that's good. It's published by Cedar Fort, right?
0: It, it is.
1: And it builds on Preach My Gospel.
0: It is. So Preach My Gospel is the foundation, but it, like anything that has a foundation, you have to build up from there. Preach My Gospel was first published 15 years ago, and building on this foundation... In my book, What They Don't Teach You at the MTC, uh, I'm adding walls and a roof, if you will, to a house. One of the unique chapters I have is how to be a virtual missionary. And so I'd like to tell you a story about Sister Bat and how she applied some of these principles of start with interest, share experiences, Uh, from the fruits of the gospel, and then talk about doctrinal questions third. So Sister Bat was called to the Czech Republic, but because of COVID, because of the pandemic, she was reassigned to the Las Vegas, Nevada mission. When she arrived, she joined several professional women's groups on Facebook. She found that there was a newcomers group and said, hey, I'm a newcomer to Las Vegas, I'm going to join this group. And she asked in the group, what should a family-oriented single woman know about Las Vegas? Lots of people know about the casinos and the clubs. She went online and said, I I want to uh, know about uh, positive groups that are meeting. I want to know about places to go and things to do that a single professional woman like myself might be interested in. And she developed friendships with uh, several people. She gave ideas as she uh, spent more time in Las Vegas and others shared ideas. Eventually, someone said, uh, hey, why are you in Las Vegas anyway? And so in response to their question, she said that she was a volunteer, a missionary for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and that she hoped eventually to go to the Czech Republic. Well, a couple of women became very interested and asked her about her background. Was she trained by going to a seminary or uh, taking certain courses? And she was able to say, no, while she had gone through seminary in high school, it wasn't the same as a college-oriented class, and shared her family experiences, reading the scriptures regularly. Eventually, she was able to teach some of these women and see one of them baptized while serving in Las Vegas, all because she joined an interest group, shared the fruits of the gospel, and then allowed others to ask doctrinal questions when they were ready to do so. I think it's a really great, inspiring story.
1: I love that story. That's a great story. Now, Oliver Cowdery and others were not allowed by the Indian agent to continue teaching because they didn't have a permit and they never got it. Any example of modern day missionaries who didn't get a visa or had other restrictions?
0: You know, now there are a lot of restrictions because of the pandemic. Let me tell you about one, our grandniece. Uh, it's really a story of personal resilience and relying on the Lord altogether, she's been out on her mission five, going on six months, but she spent two months of that, more than a third of her mission quarantined. At one time, she spent 29 consecutive days isolated from others. Uh, Now, there's restrictions for you, huh? There's somebody who's had to deal with uh, not just an inability to teach the gospel, like Oliver Cowdery but was also restricted to her apartment until she was able to pass periods of time of quarantine. Let me tell you a little bit about her story. She was called on a mission to Germany, but couldn't get an initial visa, so she was reassigned to Ohio. After a couple of months there, the church sent her and others to the Preston MTC in England, hoping that they would be able to, after a period of time, being quarantined to go directly from Preston to Germany. But after 14 days, when they were put on an airplane, they had fulfilled their quarantine period, Um, they were about to leave the terminal, and elders from the London-England mission rushed onto the plane and said they needed to disembark since Germany would not let anybody from England into the country at that time. They had discovered that there was a new coronavirus variant didn't know if it was worse than the standard variant. They could see that it spread fairly quickly. And at that time, Germany wasn't letting anybody from England into their country. So she and her companion got off, and they were within a day or two reassigned to the London-England mission. After a couple of weeks there, officials in England said they wouldn't renew their temporary visas, Um, they, They didn't want anybody from outside the country there if they could avoid it. So they were reassigned to Croatia, where they were quarantined again, and then after 14 days, assisted with earthquake relief. But following their quarantine period in Croatia and some period of time in service, uh, to earthquake victims. They were permitted to go to Germany. They were able to get a visa. And she's now in Germany following a period of time when she was uh, quarantined in place.
1: That's a, that's a lot of bouncing around. Did she, ever, did she get discouraged?
0: Most of the time, no. She's really very resilient. She focused on what she could control and not things that were outside of her control. You know, mental health experts, some of whom have done research with the missionary department, say the single most important thing missionaries can do is control the controllables. Don't worry about things you can't change. Focus on what you can influence. Sometimes missionaries get expectations that are way bigger than circumstances would allow. And it's those unrealistic expectations cause them to get anxious, feel a lot of stress, worry about their own situation, and get very, very discouraged.
1: That's good advice, but but how can missionaries do that?
0: Again, it's control the things you can control. Sometimes those are very simple things that can make a difference. Um, There's a Navy Admiral who's written a book called Make Your Bed. I quote it in my book, What They Don't Teach You at the NTC. And his advice is, if you want to feel good about yourself, make your bed. It's one of the important things that can build personal resilience.
1: What? Making your bed builds resilience?
0: That's what he says. Uh, Navy Admiral William McRaven gave this advice at a college commencement, then wrote a book about it. Of course, the idea just goes back to controlling things you can control. And McRaven says, that's something you can control. That's something you can do every day. Make your bed. Start by making your bed. That's something you can control. And then go from there. As a mission president, we often ask missionaries to take care of their apartment, take care of their personal health. And I tried to boil it down to three things that I wanted the missionaries to do. Each day, helping keep their apartment clean, their their local area clean. One, make their bed. Two, wash dirty dishes. Three, take out the trash. These are three very practical things, but they go back to controlling things that you can control.
1: It's a sneaky way of building resilience. Without talking about it, just go out and do it.
0: Yeah, sometimes we talk way too much without actually doing We don't create practical examples. And again, that's what I've tried to do. So in addition to preach my gospel, the church has a few years ago published a booklet called Adjusting to Missionary Life. In Adjusting to Missionary Life, it talks about things like resilience. Sometimes there's a limited number of examples. So I've broadened examples on personal resilience, on practical applications for missionaries that deal with stress, anxiety, depression, and how on a limited basis missionaries can control their expectations. Let's look at uh, another theme that's in this seven uh, sections in the Doctrine and Covenants. Let's look at specifically Doctrine and Covenants 30 through 31. So let's read Doctrine and Covenants section 31 through uh, section 31, verse 2. It's a really important scripture about family relations.
1: Uh, may I read it?
0: Yes, please do.
1: Uh, Behold, you have had many afflictions because of your family. Nevertheless, I will bless you and your family. Yea, your little ones, and the day cometh that they will they will believe and know the truth and be one with you in my church. Many afflictions because of your family. Uh, I think Thomas Marsh's troubles between his wife, who owned a cow with other members and was offended because she was seen as skimming creamer, all well known. Is that what this is all about?
0: Yeah, it's not referring to that incident. That happens later. But I think uh, this verse foretells of Thomas Marsh having family difficulties. He had three boys. They were young. He taught them uh, well but he and his, his wife did have troubles. Thomas and Elizabeth Marsh were early converts. Uh, interesting to know, Thomas Marsh, of course, he was the president of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. But he first heard about the church in 1829, before it was formally organized. And when he heard about the Book of Mormon, he looked for Joseph Smith. He actually went to the publisher where the Book of Mormon, the very first Book of Mormon, was being printed. He met Oliver Cowdery and Martin Harris, and Martin Harris showed him the first 16 pages of the Book of Mormon that were already printed by the publisher. And so he was able to read the Book of Mormon before it was completed. He later moved with his wife Elizabeth and their three sons to Palmyra, to be closer to the church. Thomas B. Marsh was told um, to take care of his little ones, that they would be blessed. As I said, they had three sons. The oldest was nine at the time. Marsh was called to serve on various missions himself. He was told in this section of the Doctrine and Covenants to be patient, not to revile, to pray always, and to heed the comforter. The revelation contains an intriguing promise as well. Let me quote from this section of the Doctrine and Covenants. "Behold, I say unto you that thou shalt be a physician unto the church, but not unto the world, for they will not receive thee." Now, Thomas Marsh wasn't a medical doctor, and this section, these verses, tell him that he'll be a physician unto the church. Interestingly, Marsh was quite a mediator among the members of the Quorum of the Twelve. Sometimes when there was dissension, sometimes when there were complaints, he was able to listen and and help resolve differences, uh, something that he wasn't able to do in his family, but he was able to do in the church. And we read about some of the challenging times that occurred in Kirtland and how Thomas B. Marsh dealt with them in Doctrine and Covenants section 112. That's a later come follow me discussion. We'll take that up uh, at a later time. But for now, know that Thomas B. Marsh was counseled not only to be patient in dealing with afflictions with his family, but also that he would be a physician to the church in helping with spiritual matters.
1: Oh. What do you consider the most important thing to learn? This section about resolving family differences?
0: I think that's part of the message. We all have differences in families, in quorums, in our work associations. And recall that Elder David A. Bednar gave a very well-known talk in General Conference about not being offended. I think that's an important part of resolving differences, uh, starting by not seeing differences as conflict but rather as um, divergent points of view, how can we resolve them?
1: Yeah, you can't offend me without my permission. That's what Elder
0: Bednar emphasized. We choose to be offended or not be offended. It's a choice we make. He also emphasized that we're going to have differences uh, at various times. My father-in-law, Neil Ball, liked to say that if you haven't been offended by someone in the church recently, then you're not really paying attention. (sighs)
1: That's a good one.
0: (laughs) Lastly, when differences occur, validate other feelings before trying to solve problems. Saying something like, what I hear from you or what I hear you saying, and then summarize what you're hearing from them, is an important way of resolving differences in families or at work or church and quorums. Check for understanding that way. Most of the time, others simply want to be heard. So acknowledging their words and focusing on their good intentions is important. In fact, I think it makes an enormous difference when we assume good intent with others.
1: That's a good lesson. So far, we've talked about missionary service and now about listening to others when there are differences and validating their feelings while assuming good intentions. Any other messages from these sections in the Doctrine and Covenants?
0: Yes, there are. There's there's a number of others. I want to focus on just one other message. Um, so again, we've talked about missionary service and Oliver Cowdery's mission to the Lamanites. We've talked about family uh, differences and how Thomas B. Marsh was counseled to be patient, but also that he would be a physician in healing differences in the church. So let me share... One more important message. It's in Doctrine and Covenants, section 33, verse 17. Would, would you mind reading that briefly before getting into it? The previous verses refer to faith and keeping the commandments. It's faith that then becomes this theme. So, uh, faith, something that we often casually mention and then move on. But it is the first principle of the gospel. We recite it in the Articles of Faith, that faith is foundational to everything else. But faith is something, if you will, that's hidden. No one really knows our faith, your faith, or my faith, except each of us individually, and of course our Heavenly Father. In that sense, it's not obvious, not not apparent, what our faith is. But section 17, uh, sorry, Section 33, verse 17, tells us something really important and equates faith to a well-known parable. Okay, that's it. Now, would you mind reading D&C 33, 17?
1: Wherefore, be faithful, praying always, having your lamps trimmed and burning and, with, and oil with you, that ye may be ready at the coming of the bridegroom. So the scripture is referring to the parable the Savior taught in the New Testament about the wise and foolish virgins. The wise were prepared and the foolish unprepared.
0: Yes. And we usually stop there and talk just about preparation, sometimes about food storage or preparing for a disaster. But the key message in this parable that's repeated here in section 33, verse 17, is about faith. In ancient times, no one would go to a wedding and take a lamp without oil, unless unless they just wanted to look good, without really being good.
1: So you're saying the foolish virgins were all about show, not substance, appearing to do all the right things, but not for the right reason.
0: Yes. Again, in biblical days, we might say that they were there just for appearance. Today... We would say something like, well, they're just a cultural Mormon. They go to church, but without having the gospel deep down in their bones. The faith is so critical that it's used here, emphasized here, as part of understanding. This first mentions in Doctrine and Covenants section 33, verse 17, Be faithful. Praying always, having your lamps trimmed and burning, and oil with you that you may be ready at the coming of the bridegroom. The focus is on faith. Faith enables us to be ready. So a seed is often hidden and planted so that no one can see it as it breaks through the soil. You know, there's a lot of ways this scripture has its analogy. This scripture Reminds us that faith is not visible to others in the same way that oil is hidden, not seen by others in a lamb.
1: So how is faith developed?
0: By hearing the word, by letting it sink deep into our hearts, experimenting with it, relying on Christ's words alone, and not some other worldly philosophy or political view. It's asking our Heavenly Father for confirmation, all things that are invisible to others, but visible to our Heavenly Father.
1: That's a lot to take in.
0: No doubt. It's a message about digging deep into the Savior's words. What did he actually say, and what does it mean to us? How can we become less superficial in our gospel study? How can we build our faith, not simply go through the motions at church? President Oaks tells us in the same conference message that if we refer to church activities way too much, And not enough to profound gospel principles, beginning with how we develop our faith. I love the song about search, ponder, and pray. That happens, that's sung a lot in primary, I think.
1: Great discussion of these verses. In summary, missionary service is about focusing on the fruits of the gospel, not doctrinal topics or differences between churches. That's what we can also learn about the mission to the Lamanites.
0: Yes, and... Find out what others' interests are, share the fruits of the gospel, and then respond to their doctrinal questions.
1: Then mediate differences by not getting offended by others.
0: That's the second message in these sections of the Doctrine and Covenants with Thomas B. Marsh as an example of someone who is able to deal with differences among church members, including in the Quorum of the Twelve, but not as much with his family. Research by the church has found the single biggest reason someone cites for being inactive or leaving the church is because somebody offended them. We can make ourselves almost become not offended proof by giving others, by not giving them any kind of power over us, but instead recognizing that we all have differences. I love something that Ivan J. Barrett used to say. He was... Uh, professor of religion at BYU, he said, uh, "Don't suddenly think that the earth is flat simply because Columbus did something that offended you. In the same way, if somebody at church says something we don't like, don't let that destroy our testimony or affect our belief in Christ. Faith is really a process. Don't just go through the emotions or or have it be something that's superficial. Dig deep in our." And the scriptures make it a part of something we think about often in our lives. I believe that these three messages from these sections of the Doctrine and Covenants are powerful. They they give us great insights into both what was happening at the time and what we can take away as learnings for us. I often told missionaries that when they bore their testimony, they shouldn't just state that they knew the church was true, but give their reasons for it. They shouldn't just state that they knew there was a prophet at the head of the church, but give their own understanding of how they knew. And the easiest way to do that was to add the word because after their own statement of belief. So as a for instance, if a missionary was saying, I know the church is true because... I have found in my daily life, it gives me guidance. They're answering a question that others have on their minds as well. How do you know the church is true? How can I follow your example and gain a similar testimony? So I'd like to end this Come Follow Me discussion with my testimony. I know that as we study the scriptures, that God will reveal to us, personal insights that are unique that are insights we gain, because he's done that for me, I know that, as we pray that our heavenly Father will hear and answer our prayers, because there are times when I've prayed that I've felt his presence, that I knew that there was someone else in the room with me, that I wasn't just saying words alone. I know that that can happen for each and every one of us because I have seen people unfamiliar, even with Jesus Christ, Muslims in Ghana, who were touched by the Holy Ghost and knew that the gospel was true. I bear testimony of that in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.